Good evening, Trinity Reformed Church. Let's start in a word of prayer. Father, we are looking into the epistle of 2 Peter this evening, looking at its journey into your uh, authoritative canon that you would give to the church to reveal your character, to admonish the saints, and to make them holy and sanctified, set apart from the world, that we may be ready as the bride of Christ, uh, always looking for his return and prepared, awake, uh, looking for our, our Savior, waiting for him to return. Uh, I ask that uh, you would help me speak clearly this evening, that it would be beneficial to your saints looking into the history of this book. Uh, I pray that we would leave here more confident in your scriptures, more ready and willing to engage a deceived world who may question the authority of your apostles and uh, of Christ and of your scriptures. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are on episode six now. Um, <laughs> feels like a long time. I think I said that last week. But it's, it, it, does, it does feel, maybe it's just the, the studying, and uh, I don't feel well, maybe. So that's probably, that's probably part of it. I, um, I do apologize if I'm sniffly uh, or I cough. I'll try not to cough into the mic uh, or blow up your uh, speakers with, with my hacking of my lungs. But I, I do have, a, I guess, a cold right now. don't think it's COVID. And if it is, I'll be immune after this anyway. Um, but yeah, I might be a little sniffly. I apologize for that. I'll try, like I said, I'll try not to do that. All right, so tonight we're going to cover a few things by discussing one New Testament book. And I was talking with Pastor Brian on what to kind of do from here. We've, we've built the foundation of looking for Scripture, looking for Scripture and the covenant and the view of covenant theology and, and how God works covenantally and how Scripture is brought about and how the Holy Spirit is, is breathing out these uh, uh, is breathing out scripture using means, men's lives, and stuff like that. And we've looked at foundationally some of our liberal scholars' arguments against, uh, against orthodoxy and against scripture. So now we're going to look into controversial books. And you might be saying to yourself, well, every single New Testament book is probably controversial. And yeah, well, definitely true. But there are some that stick out more than others. And one of, the, uh, one of the books that stick out more than any other, I would argue, maybe Revelation is a, is a close second, maybe, maybe Hebrews as well. But Second Peter is probably the most controversial epistle that we have uh, in, our, in our New Testament. Now, if you watched last week, I, I did say that we'd look into dating and author, ownership, and, and it did take me a while to come to decide how I would properly do this. But like I said, when Brian and I were talking, we'll probably look at maybe even each book in the New Testament, look at uh, the arguments against it, of its uh, apostolic authority, of its apostolic authorship, or who wrote it, and, and kind of dissect those arguments and, and go from there. But we're going to start with Second Peter and see how, th- see how this goes. And I decided on 2 Peter for a few reasons. One, like I said, of all the New Testament canon, this epistle has had one of the most challenging journeys into uh, canonization. Two, 
It's one of my favorite epistles for many reasons of its own. And three, probably the most influential reason, uh, Pastor Jeff has decided to go through Second Peter on Friday nights uh, during the Bible study. And a shameless plug for Friday night Bible studies. Uh, for those that can't make it live for that, we do post those every Friday. It's a week behind. So every Friday we, we post the week before. Um, but, uh, yeah, take a look at those. They're really, they're really awesome. And so, yeah, Jeff's going to be going through Second Peter. So that was really the most influential reason for that. As we look into Second Peter, the definitions discussed in Episode 1 will be essential for, for this study. Aspects of the exclusive definition, the functional definition, and the ontological definition uh, are all going to come into play tonight. But we will, it won't be comprehensive. Uh, they'll come into play, but they, it won't be comprehensive because we're just going to do an overview of, of Second Peter and its, its tenacious journey in the New Testament canon. Like I said, I'm not feeling well, so I'm going to try to make it a little shorter today. And I, and I may even cut out some of the arguments I was going to go over. Uh, we'll see. We're also going to look at just a little bit of church history and uh, how the church throughout the centuries, their views on the epistle and where modern scholars land today on, on Second Peter. And uh, sidebarring, real quick, I'd just like to say to those who have been commenting on our YouTube channel, on our studies, and that have been hitting the like button, thank you very much for doing that. If, if you haven't received responses from myself or Brian or Pastor Jeff uh, on those comments you made on, on some of the teaching, uh, we're sorry. We'll try to get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, but, I, but I just want you to know that we are reading those comments and we appreciate them. And if you haven't, uh, please hit the like button. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that like button because it makes the videos. Uh, 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 I can't remember how. The, I don't, I'm not sure how the algorithm works, but it makes it easier easier to find i guess so hit that like button i'll start with something shocking first it's always good to start with something shocking right would it surprise you to know that some of the pillars in the reformed faith have actually looked at second peter with hesitation and some have even considered it a second class scripture martin luther categorized second uh, peter in the list of disputed books even though one of his best commentaries he ever wrote, according to Charles Spurgeon, was on the, the Petrine epistles and Jude. Now, eventually, Martin Luther will view Second Peter as completely authoritative. And honestly, he probably looked at Second Peter as authoritative his entire life. He just realized that it was a disputed book and, and just made that, that claim that it was disputed, which is fine. Uh, John Calvin. John Calvin was hesitant to ascribe a a Petrine authorship uh, given the positive light that it paints the Apostle Paul. In 2 Peter 3.16, it reads, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Jerome's view on the style difference between first and second Peter uh, pointed to to different authors and, and that directly influenced Calvin. 
Calvin writes uh, directly in his preface uh, to his commentary on Second Peter, and this is this is what this is what John Calvin says. What Jerome writes influences influences me somewhat more. That some induced by a difference in the style did not think that Peter was the author. For though some affinity may be traced, yet I confess that there is that manifest difference which which distinguishes different writers. There are also other probable conjectures by which we may conclude that it was written by another rather than Peter. At the same time, according to the consent of all, it has nothing, it has nothing unworthy of Peter, as it, as it uh, shews everywhere the power and the grace of an apostolic spirit, and it absolutely does. If it be received as canonical, we must, be, we must allow Peter to be the author, since it, it has his name inscribed, and he also testifies that he lived with Christ. And it would have been a fiction unworthy of a minister of Christ to have personated another individual. He's talking about pseudepigraphal epistles that we'll get into, and that's going to be very important. So then, I conclude that if the epistle be deemed worthy of credit, it must have proceeded from Peter. Not that he himself wrote it, but that some one of his disciples set forth in writing by his command those things which the necessity of the times required. For it is probable that he was now in extreme old age, for he says that he was near his end. And it may have been uh, that the request of the godly, at the request of the godly, he allowed his testimony of, of his mind to be recorded shortly before his death. Because it might have somewhat availed when he was dead to support the good and to repress the wicked. And we'll get back to Calvin here in a second. Uh, but Erasmus is another one. Erasmus, most well known as Luther's opponent during the Reformation and attributed to the Texas Receptus, flat out rejected the epistle. But even, even while Erasmus questioned the validity of Second Peter, as many men did throughout church history and some of the other New Testament books, uh, he says this, quote, If the church were to declare the titles that they, the several New Testament books listed, that would be Hebrews, the second and third John, um, uh, second Peter, obviously, uh, bear to be as canonical as their contents, then I would condemn my doubts. For the opinion formulated by the church has more value in my eyes than human reasons, whatever they may be. And modern scholars would not be so humble as Erasmus. Scholars in the liberal camp conclude as well that Peter, that Second Peter, is not the same author as First Peter, but their reasons will go far beyond style and time, and uh, will enter into condemnable heresies as as why they deem Second Peter as a, as a forgery. What will come into play here when we look at reasons why it's categorized as pseudepigraphal are the last two weeks that we looked at the arguments of liberal scholars, Walter Bauer, Bart Ehrman, Earhart, some of those guys. Uh, that's, not to, that's not to say that all who suggest other than uh, Petrine authorship are on the fringes of orthodoxy. 
I just read John Calvin, for example, whom I mentioned just a little bit ago, and we would all consider uh, John Calvin to be a bulwark of orthodoxy. And, and I'd like to actually sidebar on that uh, briefly here. Uh, many Christians will break fellowship with otherwise doctrinally sound believers over the view of authorship, and not just Second Peter, uh, but Old Testament canon too. Like, possibly who who wrote the Pentateuch? Was it all of it? Was all of it Moses? Was some of it Moses? Some of these some of these uh, issues people hold as dividing lines. Let me ask you a question based on what I just read from John Calvin. Would we break away from John Calvin because he suggests that someone other than Peter wrote Second Peter, even if it was at Peter's request? I hope that you would say, no, that's crazy. Uh, you know, if you do say that, maybe we should give the exact latitude, that, that exact latitude uh, to other believers as well who are working through these difficult questions, who are faithful and teaching... Uh, who are faithful and are teaching sound doctrine. And incidentally, the study is actually probably going to challenge some of John Calvin's views on the authorship of Peter. Eventually, you know, next week and the week after, I'm going to present some arguments that are going to, that are going to date Second Peter very early. Most modern scholars today will say Second Peter was the last epistle written, was the last one. So, so in John Calvin's view, he doesn't say really anything about the date, but he talks about the possible if someone else did write it on the behest of Peter himself. He doesn't really talk about the span of time that that took. Might have been Peter might have been saying it right in front of him, and the scribe was writing it down, or he said give him authority to write it down. Not really sure, but uh, I'll present some arguments that are going to possibly date second peter very early now real, real quickly I, I i said the word pseudepigraphal and i've said it i've said that word before in earlier studies in a positive light now let me define pseudepigraphy or pseudepigrapha pseudepigraphal uh, in the context of this study um, when i pick up this book right here i hope you can read that uh, I, I am not holding a collection of forgeries meant to deceive the readers. Most of these are categorized as apocalyptic literature, and, and none seek to change uh, theology or doctrine. Uh, Pastor Brian makes the analogy that uh, if you were to go to a play and on the life of Abraham Lincoln, and there's an actor playing as Abraham Lincoln, uh, we, all, we all know when we go to watch that play that they're not trying to deceive us and that that is actually Abraham Lincoln, right? Uh, And we actually know the history of Abraham Lincoln enough. Well, we should. uh, Maybe we don't if we go watch that play, but but you can find out the history of Abraham Lincoln enough that if they try to tell you that he was a vampire slayer, I don't know if anyone has watched that movie, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer, but if they start telling you that's true, you're going to be like, no, that never happened. What are you talking about? Um, so, so these aren't forgeries, trying to change people's faith, trying to, uh, even the book of Enoch, right? Which is, that's just giving context to some of the things in scripture, but it's not changing anything. Now, when I mention New Testament pseudepigraphal works, I will be implying 
uh, intent to deceive and change orthodox doctrine. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, a lot of the Gnostic Gospels are going to take apostolic names because of their authority, what's attached to them, and put it on works that are meant to deceive the people and to take them out of orthodox belief. So in the context of today's study, pseudepigraphal will be synonymous with forgery and ill intent. And not to mention uh, epistles, there is, it's very sporadic in history for an epistle to be pseudepigraphal work in the context of what I just talked about with these guys, um, even before the first century. There, there are only two pseudepigraphal epistles from uh, Jewish sources, that, and, uh, and they're called, uh, well, the title of them is The Epistle of Jeremy and the Letter to Aristius. And scholars even hesitate to label those as epistles, because if you read that next to 1 Corinthians, it would not look the same at all. So there's no really any precedent to have, to have pseudepigraphal epistles without, uh, without the intent to deceive. It's important to note that 2 Peter is not part of the New Testament canon because the church was loose in granting authority to an epistle that bore an apostle's name. It's not like they, they tried to gather up all the writings that had Peter's name or Paul's name or whatever and say, yeah, those are, we'll be safe and conservative and just allow everything to be part of, uh, of canon or something like that. No. And, and that's even, we can even see that example in, in Scripture itself. Even Paul was aware that some were posing letters as apostolic to teach false doctrine. And we can read that in Second Thessalonians. Quote, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. People are writing letters in, uh, end quote, people are writing letters with the apostolic name on there or with some deceiving apostolic authority trying to tell people that Christ has already come. <laughs> Hyperpreterism. By the way, side note, uh, Jeff Durbin is going after, um, what's his name? Sean McCrary, Sean McCrary, Sean McCrary, who is a hyper hyper preterist, uh, and and well into heresy, and he's doing he's uh, has done some really good videos addressing hyper preterism, which I would recommend anyone. I just wanted to mention that. Going back to our study, uh, Tertullian removes a presbyter or elder. He removes an elder for writing a document called the Acts of Paul. And, and Thelsa, because it carried Paul's name on it. He was enraged that someone would write a document that carried the authority of Paul on there. And, and what really scandalized Tertullian is, is the, that the document allowed for women to teach and to baptize. So that was, uh, even, but even if it was all orthodox, uh, if it was an orthodox document, just the fact that he put Paul's name on there would have been scandalous. In the uh, Moratorian uh, fragment, which is the oldest list of New Te Testament books ever discovered, uh, dated to 170 AD, it lists several books as totally heretical and completely rejected. 
And this kind of gives some context into the, some of the primary reasons that uh, of, of the resistance of Second Peter as canonical was because many of the, of the pseudepigraphal works or the forgeries in, in this time were actually bearing Peter's name. Uh, for example, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Peter. Um, and the Gospel of Peter specifically is a huge influence probably on why it was so difficult for, for the Epistle of Second Peter. Because the Gospel of Peter initially fooled Cyprian. And Cyprian uh, wrote, wrote a, a document against that gospel titled, quote, Concerning the So-Called Gospel of Peter. Uh, it's an interesting read. I haven't read all of it, but, uh, um, but it's because it was passed off as initially as something that Peter wrote. And what, what the gospel of Peter ended up being was just a docetist argument, uh, was, was presenting Christ falsely. So in this atmosphere of aversion to, to documents falsely attributed to the apostles, Second um, Peter, in this environment, so I think I've laid a foundation that, look, the church did not accept pseudepigraphal epistles that were, that were taking the name of the apostles but were presenting heresies, right? So in this atmosphere of that aversion, Second Peter is accepted by both Clement of Alexandria and a very prominent literary critic or scholar uh, by the name of Origen. Many of us have heard of that name before. So I, I, would, I would argue it's safe to say that at least Second Peter was not viewed as a known pseudepigraphal work. It wasn't like Origen was like, oh, yeah, it's probably fake, it's probably a forgery, but, uh, but yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think that, uh, categorize it as a scripture or something like that. Like, he was the only one. So in this frame, I think this is, this is an excellent framework to build uh, an argument for, for the canonicity of, uh, the, of, of Second Peter and First Peter, too, because modern scholars will even argue that First Peter is a forgery, as we'll see uh, Bart Ehrman say at the, towards the end of the study. Real quickly, let's look at the functional difficulties that Second Peter had in the early church. Now, when I say functional difficulties, I'm referring to the functional definition of Scripture, which is how it acts within the church, right? So when the church, is the church reading it aloud during their worship services? Are they expositing these texts, right? And it's important to say that even some non-canonical books at this time were being read aloud, like the Shepherd of Hermas, or the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, those these are being read aloud, as w- along with what is considered canon, which is why we can't just focus on functionality of of text being read as canon, right? That's the importance of not having a blind uh, tunnel vision lens on here, right? I mentioned that uh, in the first study. Now, in the scholarly realm, they would categorize this as attestation. Attestation just means existence, right? How do we know something exists? Well, we know it exists because somebody mentions it. Well, if somebody mentions it, that means it's acting some way within the church, right? That's the functionality part. So I'm just going to use function and synonymously with attestation or whatever and, and see how not just Second Peter but other books are functioning within, within the early church. And is there evidence of that function in the church that would help, one, to date the book 
of Second Peter, uh, and two that the church did not see it as super pigful. We'll we'll probably we'll focus more on two because one we'll talk about next week when we look at some of the dating of Second Peter. But the functionality question is going to help answer those two points. <clears throat> so as far as did the church see it as pseudepigraphal, let's go back to Origen. I mentioned Origen was the, uh, the first, or I don't know if I mentioned this, but Origen is the first to cite Second Peter by name in his homilies on Joshua. Now, it's important when I say uh, Origen was the first to mention Second Peter by name. Uh, because a lot of people will say, well, I won't accept a book as functioning or uh, attested to unless it is clearly spelled out that it's being used. For example, uh, I need a church father to tell me they quoted from Second Peter. Uh, I will not allow uh, someone to just paraphrase something out of Second Peter uh, or, or maybe reference it but not say it, I took it from there, right, just and passing, maybe it sounds like something from Second Peter. They won't allow that to be, to be aspects of functionality, even though that that is legitimate. And we'll get into that uh, not today, uh, some other time. But there are, there are there is evidence that church fathers, without expressly saying this is from Second Peter, that they're using arguments from First and Second Peter. <laughs> and this goes into the Greek. This goes in, and this is why this is why knowing the original languages for for church elders for leaders is so important because because when we are presented these arguments, we can actually go back to to the original languages and say, look, look, Irenaeus is using the exact same Greek words in its in its grammar, even as let's say Second Peter. He doesn't say it's from there, but why would we just disregard that as? as not being from Second Peter, if it's literally the same. <laughs> what are the, and it's not, just one, it's not just one phrase. It's multiple passages from, from Second Peter. It's also important to remember there are not chapter and verses. They're not going to say Cyprian, or Cyprian. Origen's not going to say, I'm quoting from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 21, or whatever. They're just going to quote it. And unless they say, yes, that was from Second Peter, you're just going to have to make that connection sometimes. Because honestly, when they were writing this to whomever they were writing to, they would have understood that in, in their context. They would have been like, oh, yeah, that's that's Second Peter or that's whatever Hebrews or whatever. OK, back to origin. I was kind of ranted there for a little bit. Back to origin. He cites. Second Peter specifically in his homily on Joshua. Quote, and this is, this is beautiful imagery, by the way. Okay, I'll read it now for real. Quote, So to our Lord Jesus Christ sent his apostles as priests carrying well-wrought trumpets. First Matthew sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, and Luke, and John, each gave forth a strain on their priestly trumpets. Peter, moreover, sounds with the two trumpets of the epistles, James also and Jude. Still, the number is incomplete, and John gives forth the trumpet sound through his epistles and apocalypse. And Luke, while describing the deeds of the apostles, last of all, moreover, the, that one comes who said, 
I think that God has set us forth as the apostles last of all, 1 Corinthians. And thundering on the 14 trumpets, trumpets of his apostles, he threw down, even on their very foundations, the walls of Jericho. That is to say, all the instruments of idolatry and the dogmas of the philosophers. Now, there's a lot here in that, in that, that quote. Origin is, origin is clear in other areas. Eusebius quotes, Eusebius is a church, early church historian, but he quotes Origen a lot. Origen's clear that uh, others in, the, in his time have doubts about Second Peter. He's, he's, there's no question that there are doubts, as we mentioned earlier. And that's because of the, of the other forgeries in Peter's name. But as far as Origen is concerned, he functionally and ontologically uh, places Second Peter within God's New Testament authoritative works. It's perfectly clear. As he sets that beautiful picture up of the walls of Jericho, as each gospel and epistle being trumpets that we that as people of God around the enemy bring the walls down right and and either save people out of Jericho or destroy the enemy one of the two. Uh, many scholars uh, would agree uh, that in this time, Origen was one of the best literary critics in antiquity. Now, if Second Peter were written around the time Origen was on the scene, writing and engaging with canon, because they date the writing of Second Peter and Origen being around the same time, one would think that he would be much more critical, uh, especially since uh, one of the loudest arguments for the late dating is the stylistic differences between First and Second Peter. But Origen, in, in all of his treatises and works, doesn't really think that's important. He doesn't it doesn't bother him either. At least it doesn't bother him or he, maybe he understands that second Peter is writing in a different way. Second Peter is talking about, uh, false teachers in the church, right? Heresies in the church. First Peter is more about persecution. So yeah, of course the, the grammar and style, it might be a little different if you're talking about different things or whatever. So maybe that didn't bother him, but in either case, someone who was, was as critic, so as critical of literature as origin, not to have issues with a document that, if it was written that late, would just accept it without any criticism uh, is, is hard, to, hard to argue. I mentioned the uh, moratorium fragment. It gives us another insight into specific books' functionality within the church. Uh, it's interesting that in that fragment, Second Peter is actually absent. It's not listed as one of the uh, canonical books. And you might say to yourself, well, wouldn't that point, isn't that evidence that points against, against its uh, functionality? But some other books that were not listed is First Peter, James, uh, and Hebrews. And there's many reasons uh, why Second Peter, First Peter what is, were omitted from the list. It's not, that, <clears throat> it's not that they consider them forgeries or something like that. Uh, but a lot of people will just jump to that conclusion and say, well, silence is, we'll, we'll argue from silence. If they don't mention it, then they obviously think it's uh, worthy of the trash can. Well, that's not, that's not fair either. Uh, it's important to know that around just shortly after the Council of Nicaea in 325, there's the Synod of Laodicea, which is in 363. And 2 Peter is viewed as canon during the Synod. And... Here's a, a few 
uh, a few canons that came out of that synod, Canon 59, no psalms composed by private individuals nor any uncanonical books may be read in the church, but only the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments. And Second Peter was included in that canonical uh, books list during that council. Later councils uh, of Hippo and Carthage, they're also going to recognize Second Peter as canonical. And those councils are important not because of what they, what they deem as canon, but what they've actually rejected. Because it, it goes against that argument that, well, the church just kind of allowed anything, right? They weren't really sure what was being written, and to be conservative, they'll just allow everything in there, unless it's just outright heresy or they haven't found it yet, right? That would be the argument. But in the, in the councils of Hippo and Carthage, they, this is where they reject the epistle of Barnabas and uh, Clement's letter to Rome as canonical. Now, I've read a little bit of Clement's letter to Rome, and, I mean, that is like if, if Pauline theology was a bucket of water, that letter is just dipped, it's totally submerged, right? Dripping with Pauline theology. And it, you could see, if you've read the whole thing, why that might be considered like scripture because, it, I mean, it's practical, right? It's, it's talking to the Corinthians again after Paul's first, second, third, how many letters he wrote to the Corinthians and trying to trying to bring them together, trying to unify them, try to admonish them to bring church discipline as it's supposed to be. I mean, you would really see that. And the, the Epistle of Barnabas is great, too. I'd encourage everyone to read the Epistle of Barnabas. These are, these are helpful. Shepherd of Hermas, these are helpful. The Didache, these are helpful. But it shows, it shows the, the careful analysis with which the church accepted or rejected writings as canon. And I'd just like to reemphasize, read those, read those, uh, those documents. They're really good. And they're, they're helpful, they were helpful for Christians then. They're helpful for Christians now. I'm gonna, uh, on a separate note, sidebarring again, just going back to uh, the Council of Laodicea, when I was reading through a lot of the, the different canons they came, they came to during that council, I did find an interesting one, uh, Canon 29, and I think it was, I don't know, three, three weeks ago with um, Brian's going through Matthew and we were talking about the Sabbath. I think it was three weeks ago. But here's what Canon 29 says from that council. Uh, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if they shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. Obviously, that was a, a hot topic back then. But I found that interesting just because we, we just talked about the Sabbath. So those are some, those are some functional considerations. Here's an uh, exclusive consideration. So the exclusive view where, where church would, would proclaim authority on something, right? So Eusebius, the church historian that I mentioned earlier, Eusebius gives us a clear, exclusive definition of 2 Peter in that he affirms the majority of the church accepts the epistle as authentic and, and authoritative, even though he had, Eusebius himself had reservations about it. Now, I think, it's, I think it's important to mention, even though Eusebius had reservations about 2 Peter, he places it within the category of disputed books. Now, there's a, there's 
many other disputed books at this time, even all the way up to the Reformation, which would be James, Jude, 2nd and 3rd John, and obviously 2nd Peter. He categorizes those together. There's another category of books that would be categorized as spurious uh, or uh, forgeries, pseudepigraphal, right? And those would be the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Peter. He does not put 2nd Peter into that, to that category. Again, because the, the difference between a pseudepigraphal epistle is, is it's actually trying to bring you out uh, of orthodox faith, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, it's completely different of what the, what the gospels are teaching, of what, what the apostles are teaching. Because every apostle is going to, while they're, while they're addressing different subjects in different churches, the message will ultimately be the same. There's a consistency in message that beautifully come together. And John Calvin, I just want to read it again in his, in his commentary. He makes this point about, uh, about Second Peter. At the same time, according to the consent of all, it has nothing unworthy of Peter, as it shews everywhere the power and the grace of an apostolic spirit. And, Eus- and Eusebius and everyone knows that. That's why it's not. That's not. It's not ugh, that's why it's not categorized with uh, Gospel of Peter, which is docetism. Gospel of docetism is what it should be called. So, if we were to just, if we were to look at the exclusive definition, Second Peter is fully accepted as canon uh, by the Church uh, by the fourth century, at the latest. P seventy two, which is dated to the third century, uh, contains the earliest copies of First and Second Peter. And Second Peter shows up in the most critical textual discoveries. That would be Codex Sinaiticus, which is 4th century, Codex Vaticanus, which is, again, as well 4th century, and Codex uh, Alexandrius, which is 5th century. Naturally, we would say, then, uh, that the, f- the functionality and the, ontolo- and the ontology of authority would be ascribed to Second Peter and that the church is acknowledging both of those things. So when we see these in those codexes, when we see those in the church affirming the authority of Second Peter, it's not that it wasn't there before. They are acknowledging the functionality and the, ontolo- and the ontology of it being authoritative through the Holy Spirit uh, to sanctify the church. And here's, where, here's, and here's my biggest issue with modern scholarship when it comes to their analysis to, to Second Peter. Well, any, honestly, any, when I say modern scholarship, I mean modern liberal scholarship. Any, any New Testament text, right, is that they have, this, they have this kind of superiority complex. And what do I mean by that? Well, when they're, when they're uh, analyzing these texts, they're going to exclude the scrutiny and resistance, in, th- in this case of Second Peter, the resistance that Second Peter went through in the early church, right, and reexamine it afresh, uh, and ultimately anachronistically, because they're gonna they're gonna look at at the early church as uninformed or right they they were they weren't objective, right? They're just too they're just religious zealots that can't look at information accurately. So, so, for example, the conclusions of Origen, or, or Cyril of Jerusalem, Gregory Nazianzus, uh, Epiphanes, Athanasius, Augustine, uh, Ruffinus, Jerome, 
the councils that we just discussed, the councils of Laodicea, of Hippo, of Carthage, they're not enough. They may look at those and see, you know, oh, you know, this is where they were wrong or, uh, you know, this is, this, is what, this is what religious fanaticism will do to you, right? Look at those poor men who are blinded by their religion. They can't be objective or something like that. <clears throat> it's only the modern man. It's only the objective man today that can judge these works, that can judge Second Peter and the manner uh, worthy of, of uh, accurate textual criticism. That's my biggest, especially when I'm, doing, when I'm preparing for these, these studies, I, it, just ble- it just bleeds out. It bleeds out. And here's some examples of what I'm talking about. And I'm going to pick on Bart Ehrman uh, because he is, he's the, the most popular uh, um, apostate alive today, English speaking anyway. And here's some examples from his book, Lost Christianities. Here's one, here's one quote from that book. Quote, the famous teacher of the late 4th century, Alexandria Didymus, the blind, claimed that Second Peter was a forgery and was not to be included in the canon. Now, that's just a short quote. I didn't give the full context of, of the chapter, what he's talking about. Um, but you'll have to take my word for it or go read it yourself. That's Lost Christianities, um, page uh, 230 to 231. And... Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't continue his exposition on, on that. He just asserts that, right? So Didymus the blind claims that Second Peter was a forgery. And so you're just led to, ass- to assume Didymus didn't think Second Peter should be canon. Now let's go to Bruce Metzger and his book, The Canon of the New Testament, Its Origin, Development, and Significance, page 213. And again, I'm just quoting a little bit from Bruce Metzger's book. You can go read the entire context of what he's talking about. Uh, but you'll, otherwise you'll have to take my word for it. Here's what Bruce Metzger says. It is, it is noteworthy that more than once Didymus, the blind, the same Didymus that Bart Ehrman just quoted or just mentioned, Didymus quotes from Second Peter as altogether authentic and authoritative. So the written documents that we have of uh, Didymus that are uh, uh, of original origin, original extant, has him quoting Second Peter as authentic and authoritative. Okay, well, that's kind of confusing because why is Bart Ehrman saying that Didymus claimed it was a forgery? Brutus Metzger continues. This circumstance, what circumstance? The circumstance that Didymus has quoted from Second Peter as authoritative and authentic requires reassessment of a statement made in a commentary on the, on the seven Catholic epistles uh, commonly attributed to Didymus, a work now extant only in a Latin translation. So this, this quote that is going to be attributed to Didymus is from a Latin translation that's not even the original uh, uh, work accredited, accredited to Didymus. It's just going to be uh, attached to him somehow. And it's only... It only exists in a Latin translation. In connection, and, and in this Latin translation, there's a discussion of Second Peter 3, verses 5 through 8. And that passage specifically does not suit the author. And he says flatly, quote, 
uh, it is therefore not to be overlooked that the present epistle is forged, which, uh, which though it is read publicly in the churches, is nevertheless not in the canon. Now, does Bart Ehrman mention that? No. Go read his book. He's not going to mention that. You're just going to tell you, yeah, Didymus said it was forged. He's not going to mention that. Oh, in other, other areas, there's Didymus quoting Second Peter as authoritative and authentic. That's not even... Now, look, I'm not saying one or the other is right in this. I, I, I have an opinion of what, which one is right. Obviously, the authentic and authoritative one. All I'm saying is, why, why can't we have... Why can't that be a, a discussion? Why, if, you're, if you don't have an agenda... Why can't we have a discussion about either of those things? Compare those things together. Or does Bart mention, or does Bart Ehrman mention Rufinus? I said his name a couple times. Rufinus actually studies under Didymus the Blind. And by the way, Didymus the Blind was a layman. He, was, he did teach, but he was considered a layman. <clears throat> Rufinus studied under Didymus. And uh, Didymus writes a work called The Exposition of the Apostles' Creed. And he lists canonical books in that list. And guess what's there? Second Peter. And Rufinus doesn't mention really at all that Didymus concludes that Second Peter is not an epistle, that it is forged. Was that mentioned? No, it's not mentioned. How about this from Bart Ehrman's book, Lost Christianities? Quote, the final book of the New Testament to be written was probably Second Peter. He just asserts that, by the way. A book almost universally recognized by critical scholars to be pseudonymous. Not actually written by Simon Peter, but one of many Petrine forgeries from the second century. And he lists other examples. Gospel of Peter, Apocalypse of Peter, the Letter of Peter to James, etc. Guess what? The church as well, and the early church would identify those as forgeries as well, right? The church, the church identifies those. I, I, I talked about that at the beginning. Continuing the quote, one of the striking features of this letter is that it discusses the writings of the Apostle Paul and considers them already as spiritual authorities, end quote. What Ehrman's talking about there is uh, in Second Peter 3.16, when he talks about... Uh, he talks about all of Paul's letters. There is no room for discussion here that Peter is talking about the letters that have been written up to that point in time by Paul. Not that, not that Paul has written every single letter and now some guy later in time writes this, accidentally rats himself out by, by saying that all the letters of Paul have been written already and that you need to listen to those. No room, no room for that discussion to say it could have been just the letters Paul wrote to this point. But what, what's more important to, what I, what I, to my main point here is that Ehrman doesn't allow any of the early church fathers to speak to what he just said, right? He just, he just will address recognized critical scholars, right, modern scholars, we're not going to worry about what Origen said or what Athanasius said or what Augustine said because they're just all religious zealots. <clears throat> right? Second Peter is a forgery. 
And it all it slipped past everyone. Now I just want the discussion. Like let's uh let's talk about it. Again, second Peter, I would argue, and I think it's it's Loctite argument that it's either written by Peter or it's something like what what Jerome mentions or what John Calvin mentions, that it was that Peter uh commissioned somebody to write his memoirs or whatever. He's close to death, as it mentions in Second Peter. Yeah, but there's no there's no allowance to, for the first century, the early church, to have any say in this whatsoever. All right, here's another one from Bartiron's book. Quote, Yet other books are pseudonymous, forgeries by people who explicitly claim to be someone else. Included in this book is almost certainly Second Peter. Almost certainly. There, if, if, you, if you read Bart Ehrman's book, Lost Christianities, and you read Bruce, Bruce Metzger's book, Bruce Metzger will go, will take both arguments and dissect them, right? He's true to the history. Metzger is true to the history. Uh, Ehrman only shows you one side and doesn't even really explain it very well. He just makes assertions a lot. Including this group, is all, because, it's, because for Ehrman, he's done so much research, it's just he can't... We're, we're probably not smart enough to really understand all this stuff. All right, I'm continuing the quote now. Included in this group is almost certainly Second Peter, probably the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, quite likely the De- Deuteropauline epistles of Second Thessalonians, Colossians, and Ephesians, and possibly 1 Peter and Jude. He even puts 1 Peter in there, which I thought was, I thought was bold. But why would someone claim to be a famous person from the past? As we have seen, it was principally in order to get a hearing for his views. And these authors' views were not merely heard, they were accepted, respected, granted authority, and included in sacred scripture. Now, can you, can you see the kernels of truth in what he said, right? Why would someone claim to be a famous person from the past? Well, yeah, he's... he's He's right in saying, as we have seen, it was, it was principally in order to get a hearing from, uh, for his views. Sure. I mean, Tertullian, right? That was Tertullian's beef with that presbyter when he wrote that uh, works of Paul and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, right? Because he attached Paul's name on it and Tertullian's mind to, to get an audience, right? And especially because that document had uh, unorthodox things, like I talked about women and whatnot. So that's, that's a kernel of truth. But then he attaches just assertions to that kernel of truth uh, without really explaining them. Like, like that, the last statement he says, and these authors' views, when he's talking about second, he's talking about Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, first, second period, right? These are all forgeries, apparently, with no meaningful discussion on why. They're just probably, <laughs> that's, that's the explanation. Probably. I think that quote, more than the others, show the disdain and the complete omission of the church fathers in the past that have dealt with the question of forgeries. There's no, there's, it's, it's at least taken lightly that Second Peter was, was brought through the ringer because of, of, of the legitimate forgeries that were happening. Even on even on Second Peter's worst day, it was never counted as a forgery. It was counted as as a 
a contested book, possibly, as far as Cannon's concerned. But again, I Eusebius lists it with Hebrews and James, right? It was never listed with the Apocalypse of Peter, as, as Bar Ehrman mentioned, as he would he would try to link those two together, but they're not. All right, I, I'm going to stop there, uh, and we're going to pick up next week. We're going to look at, like I said, some dating possibilities for Second Peter, and some of the arguments around and about that. Please pray with me, Father. I hope I spoke clearly. I hope I presented. Uh, the argument for Second Peter accurately, and uh, that would bring honor to your name and the honor to the name of Christ. And that uh, that Second Peter would show us these amazing truths of of defending against false doctrine, defending against false teachers that would permeate the church, ensures us of our election. And, and fills out your, your final word to us as your church, as we seek to know you better, as we seek to know Christ's love for us better, as we seek to, to love the church better, and to ultimately um, be unified to Christ as, uh, as the church. And we would do these good works that we have been predestined for. Thank you for saving wretched sinners like us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.